Welcome to episode two of It Takes a Village, a podcast of Healing Hands International based out of Nashville. My name is Taryn Foster and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Gent. Hey Mark. Hey Taryn, here we are recording episode two. Whoa. Yeah, I know. And if you're just tuning in to the podcast, uh, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to our first episode uh, with our president, Art Woods, it really gives you some insight into who we are, what we do, art and his story, kind of just lays the foundation for our vision for this podcast. Yeah. So today we have on a familiar face to the Healing Hands family, Jared Brown from Mission Lazarus. Yeah. I connected with Jared probably 15 or 20 years ago, soon after he started Mission Lazarus. Um, where I was previously, sent a lot of college mission teams to serve with uh, them in both Honduras and in Haiti. And I've just long admired his passion for serving and helping others from afar. And uh, he's a great guy and just has a real heart of ministry. Yeah, he's awesome. So here's our interview with Jared Brown. Hey, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us on It Takes a Village. We're grateful you've taken time to be with us. Uh, We just launched this, as I was talking to you about, and seeing that this is episode two, you are our second guest. Mark, I am truly honored. As you should be, yes. And I (laughs) hope that people don't walk away from the podcast because they hear me on number two. This is true. We don't want any unsubscribes <laughs> after this episode two. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. So Jared is the founder and president of Mission Lazarus. It's a nonprofit organization based out of Nashville. It's been around since 2001. We're going to have him talk about that a lot today. But the focus of your work is in Honduras and Haiti. And um, you have so many great stories and history in your 20 years of being in those countries. And what I love about Mission Lazarus is, uh, you know, is a, on, in your mission and on your website, it says, you know, just in real simple terms, who you are, we do life with people. And um, we want to talk about that. And what does that practically look like for you here at home, but also on the ground? Uh, Jared and his wife, Allie, uh, she's a fellow co-founder and with him in the trenches from the beginning. And they have two kids who have grown up here in America and abroad in Honduras. Jared, I guess you and I got connected 15 or 20 years ago. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Shortly after you launched Mission Lazarus, primarily through short-term mission teams. Uh, My first introduction to you actually was through a college friend of mine, Nancy Moon, uh, who worked for you uh, for a couple of years on the ground in Chiloteca, right? That's right. When we first had our very first education program. Yeah, she is fantastic. Her and her husband, Manuel, live in Fort Worth now, have planted a church. But one reason we wanted to invite you on the podcast is because you are a longtime partner of Healing Hands. So we look forward to talking about that today as we have a conversation so our listeners can get to know you, so they can get to know Mission Lazarus, and just find out a little bit about your story. Great. And we're going to get into all that, but first, we kind of wanted to ask you about your background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Family? Yeah, I am one of the rare folks from Franklin, Tennessee. I was born and raised here. And I live here now. I never dreamed that I would be 
raising a family in my hometown. Um, when I got out of high school, I started at the University of Tennessee. And from there, I went to uh, the University of Madrid. Wow. From the University of Madrid, I transferred to Abilene Christian. And I was focused on international business in Spanish in my studies. And even after being in school in, in Spain, I wasn't able to fluently speak Spanish. So I found a program in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Oh, wow. Uh, University of Buenos Aires moved to Argentina and went to school there. And then finally the language clicked, came back and finally ended my educational career in Abilene and uh, graduated with a degree in international business and a degree in Spanish. You like school. Yeah. You went, I, I you went really to don't like school, but um, it took me a while to get through. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> College is a special time. You <laughs> yeah. can't go back. You know, it's it's great to go to as many as you can. Right. That's awesome. So how about, like, where did you meet your wife? In- yeah, so when I ended up in Honduras, which I never dreamed that I would be there, much less uh, going to spend a significant portion of my life there and have a passion for, for ministry, um, the second year I was in Honduras, a medical team that was put together by... Healing Hands founder, Randy Steger, came to Honduras, and there was a young nurse practitioner in that group oh. named Allison Thweet. Mm-hmm. And I saw her, and I said, I need one of those. <laughs> so we met in, in July of 2002, and February 2003, we got married. Yeah, so you and your family live here in Franklin part of the time. You live in Honduras part of the time, right? Your kids have grown up in both cultures. Um, what's that been like for them um, being uh, both here and abroad? You know, the first, I guess, 10 years of our our family's existence, we lived in Honduras. Both of our children were born in Honduras. They're very proud of the fact that they have dual citizenship. Um, it means a lot to them. Um, you know, they when when we moved back to the U.S. and we were renting a house outside outside of Brentwood. My son was in uh, kindergarten at Scales Elementary, and his English was very poor. And they tested him, and he had to be in ESL classes for a few years. And uh, you know, the teachers, seeing this blonde-headed, blue-eyed kid, were very much perplexed at why he was in ESL classes. Um, the transition back to the U.S. has not been fun or pleasant for any of us, and uh, particularly so for our children because of you know their culture and what they loved was was Honduras, was rural Honduras, growing up on a farm in a village in Honduras. And so, uh, while my wife and I have also you know mourned having to recognize that for the ministry to flourish, we need to have a different role. Our children have just mourned that they're not home anymore. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. And I think a lot of, a lot of missionary kids struggle with that. Yeah. So let's talk about Mission Lazarus for a minute and how did it get started? Um, I know enough to know that these things just don't pop up overnight. <laughs> they, uh, they you, you know, they start with a passion and a vision, but you probably didn't envision 20 years ago what it would be today. So uh, how, yeah, how did it get started and just how did it, how did it get off the ground in those early years? Um, I mean, looking back two decades ago, 
you know, you've, you've got a bit to reflect on, but uh, tell us a little bit about the origin of Mission Lazarus. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned where I went to school, and I was so fortunate, very blessed to be able to go to school all over the world, have a successful father who was able to fund that, fund my travels and my studies. And the goal was, you know, to, to be able to be successful in the business world. And um, our family has you know, always been uh, in church, uh, but we were in a, in a church environment that didn't have youth group activities, didn't do mission trips or anything like that. So the idea of being a missionary uh, was completely foreign and not on my radar at all. And um, my senior of college, my, my parents' home church at the time was going to take a trip uh, to Honduras right after Hurricane Mitch in 1998 to help rebuild houses. And they got ready to go and they realized none of us have ever been on a mission trip. None of us speak Spanish. We've never been to Honduras. What are we thinking? And my mom volunteered me. She said, well, Jared's out in Texas. He speaks Spanish. Maybe maybe he'll, maybe he'll want to go. And so I went mm. and I like to say that before that trip, my God, and my Jesus all fit in a really nice white box mm. with a white lid, mm-hmm. had a red ribbon tied around it. And Holy Spirit wasn't in that box. And when I got to Honduras, Holy Spirit grabbed the ends of that ribbon, gently pulled that bow off lifted the lid off, and then very violently shook <laughs> Jesus and God out of that box. And for me, they would never be in a box again. Mm. It, that trip scrambled my spiritual legs, and um, things never would be the same again. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, I'm out of school, and I've taken a few other trips down to Honduras over the few years. I took the dream consulting job for my training based in Houston in Latin America division of a large software company. And every Monday morning on an airplane to some big city and Thursday afternoon back to, to Houston, Friday in the office, and then do it all over again on Monday. And that, that is not Jared Brown. That was, (laughs) um, what I had dreamed of. Yeah. And I was miserable. Mm. I was so miserable. And, you know, I think short-term service trips impact everybody in certain ways, some more profoundly than others. For me, the fact that I was fluent in Spanish on that very first trip and truly able to understand what was being said to me by these families that had lost all their earthly possessions and the situation was quite dire in Honduras after Hurricane Mitch, it really, it really, uh, created this situation that 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 I couldn't reconcile internally between what I have in the US not because I did anything just because my ancestors were on a boat that went north and the people we were serving in Honduras their ancestors were on a boat that went south mm-hmm. and, and I just I just it just messed everything up internally and and so working and and chasing after all these things that I was chasing after in Houston made no sense. And, um, so it ended up quitting that job uh, after about a year and two suitcases moved to Honduras. So we talked about this a minute ago when I mentioned, um, 
that for Mission Lazarus, the simplicity of the of your vision as we do life with people. Uh, break that down for us as far as talk about the ministries in Mission La- with Mission Lazarus that's involved in both Honduras and Haiti, and just how does that play out? We do life with people. You know, w- w- there's a lot of things that I think that as an organization we're doing really, really well today. Most everything that we're doing really well is because at one point we weren't doing it well. Mm-hmm. And we've stayed at it and stayed with the same places, same communities, the same um, groups of people for, for long enough to be able to see, oh, that didn't work the way we thought it was going to. And then been, we've been willing to correct and adjust and, and pivot on those. One of the key things that I realized in my first year in Honduras when there was these church leaders looking to me to teach Bible classes or to preach. And I had no Bible training and, you know, it was before the days of internet and, um, I didn't have any way to, to look up sermon notes. And I stumbled across these, these, these notes and they're actually in the new Testament. They're like, call them parables. And it was like, (laughs) you know, Jesus provided us with these sermon notes and it's so simple to share and so profound. And then it like, once you graduate from those, then you have like the one with all the meat that you get to use. They, you know, they call it the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought I was a genius walking through the Sermon on the Mount in the first village that we worked to plant a church in, a village named Las Pitas. And I thought it was just so insightful that I was going to be able to share with these people, you know, don't don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, you know. Look at the lilies of the field. They're here today. And then tomorrow they're shot down and thrown in the fire. And Solomon and all of his splendor wasn't even as pretty as them. You know, seek first the kingdom of God. Yeah. Mm. And those words mean so much to me. You know, red letters that I base my faith on. And then it hit me. There is a major disconnect when you're in a village struggling to figure out how to provide for your family. And you got some... American telling you not to worry. Right. Yeah. When there is truly not any other option but to worry. And it took 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 me on a journey of trying to figure out how can these words that mean so much to be seem to be so empty to so many people around the globe. And especially when when Christ says in John, um, you know, I've come so that you can have life and life to the fullest or, or life in abundance. And, and you could hear those words and think, oh, you know, prosperity and wealth and a big house on these things. No, I think on a sh- just the simplest form, abundance means that you finish supper, there's going to be leftovers. <laughs> there's going to be leftovers. That, if, we, if we boil it down to the simplest thing, abundance, just there's, there's a little bit left over. And for the people that we were doing life with, that's not a reality. And so again, how can these words, red letters that mean so much to me be um, so empty? And, you know, it took me on a long journey of trying to figure that out and answer that question. And um, it, it really made me realize that if I truly believe these people are my brothers and sisters, and I have to do life with them, then we have to be focused on how do we solve these problems yeah and you don't solve it by 
you know, just coming in and, and giving away a sack of food. Mm-hmm. That, that treats a symptom in the moment, but it doesn't solve the problem. And if we truly believe that we are Christ's ambassadors, as Paul tells his Corinthians, then we are his representatives here to help solve these problems. And so getting back to your question of doing life with people is the only way you can truly understand their situation, their struggle. It's the only way that I feel like you even have permission to then dive deeper onto spiritual things to talk about something deeper. Yeah. Yeah. They got to have those basic needs met and not just met for the day, but met long-term for people that are listening and they're hearing about mission Lazarus for the first time. Talk for a minute about, you've got a lot of different branches of mission Lazarus, Honduras, Haiti, different ministries in each, um, different programs that you have tell us a little bit about, um, you know, just give us a snapshot of who has mission Lazarus from the practical standpoint of those different programs and ministries in both countries. Yeah, so what we want to try to do through all of our programs is cultivate dignity and purpose so individuals can live better lives now and for eternity because we believe that eternity is it's already started and it's just going to continue on. And so we try to accomplish that through our four pillars, which are individual, family, community, and economic development. So the way that plays out in, in the community or in the village is through educational programs, community health programs, um, church planting or discipleship programs, depending on the situation at hand, and then skill development and job creation to be able to help people thrive on their own at home. And at some point you went, um, you did a pivot and you not only focused on Honduras, but then several years ago you added Haiti to the organization. What led to uh, that decision to, you know, start the ministry in Haiti? What my wife and I realized early on that our training, our background had given us certain skills that you didn't find quite frequently in the, the, the mission world, and that was having established protocols and manuals of how we're going to approach these things and how we're going to do these things. And a lot of folks have a humongous passion to serve, but the gifting to sit down and actually write out those protocols is, um, it, well, it's, it's, even if you have the gifting, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's time consuming. But we saw it as the, the, the way to make sure that we stayed focused on what we had been called to do and avoided the mission drift. And so by 2009, we had this whole framework of different operational protocols established. And our bylaws said that we were focused in Honduras and we felt like should adjust our bylaws to, to be able to make these resources available to, to folks in other places around the globe. So board meeting 2009 presented to our board, you know, I think we should amend the bylaws and make this open to anywhere in the world. It was approved, amended the bylaws, and then early 2010, the earthquake hit Haiti. And we found ourselves in a really unique uh, situation. We knew folks on the ground in field hospitals where they didn't have access to anesthesia and narcotic painkillers. And And you were already going down that path before the earthquake. Uh, I mean, Haiti was already on your radar before the earthquake. 
Haiti was on our radar because of my relationship with Healing Hands and doing surveys for Healing Hands of disasters. So Healing Hands had actually sent me to Haiti a couple times um, prior to this. And so knew certain folks there and different uh, relationships on the ground. I was just going to ask, so Mission Lazarus has the vocational schools. I know they do leather making because I went down there last in February of 2020. So I kind of got a little tour of it, but that's all I, that like stood out to me. So could you like explain that a little bit? Yeah. So our education program, it's, um, it's K through 12, but one of the pieces of it, what we're seeing incredible transformation through is uh, the vocational school part of it. When, when a student has finished sixth grade for seventh, eighth and ninth grade, they can do a three year vocational training and we offer leather working, uh, sewing and carpentry. And through that, the the students are learning remarkable skills. Our program is a college prep program, and we have numerous students that go on to college. But in particular, in our region of Honduras, there's so many more opportunities to earn a a good wage from from vocational skills as opposed to college-level education. Mm -hmm. Is there a go-to story that you can reflect on that keeps you going on the days that you just need to be reminded of God's hand in everything that you're doing? Um, 2008, Hurricane Stan went through the Caribbean. And Healing Hands again reached out and asked if I could do a, a survey for them in Cuba of some damage. And I was always up for a, a good adventure and had already been to Cuba a couple of times with Healing Hands. And so I went back and... Um, met up with one of the national preachers in the country and we rented our car and headed off 12 hours from Havana towards Guantanamo and where the revolution is still very much alive. Uh, Havana, you can see a CNN international and foreigners from all over the world there as tourists. But uh, the further away from Havana you get, it's straight, it's still 1959. Mm. And through a long uh, story of different events that took place. I was uh, detained and put in a detention facility and then was put into a, a small interrogation room and was interrogated for uh, many hours. And um, no one in the U.S. knew what was happening. There wasn't cell service or internet in that part of, of Cuba. Um, my wife back in Honduras didn't know what was happening. And um, I was sitting in my cell thinking that I was going to be there a long time. And uh, the cell door opened and um, miraculously, I literally walked out of, of this detention center and drove 12 hours through the night back to Havana, got to Havana at four in the morning, turned in the rental car and got on an eight o'clock flight out of the country. And that single event where for the first time in my life, I knew what freedom meant and I was able to have it by supernatural means, in my opinion, and not because of anything that I did to deserve it. And it helped me understand so much clearer my freedom that I have in Christ. And that single event changed the whole trajectory of of, of how we're approaching 
ministry? Because we do a lot of different things, as you said. You know, we've got all these medical clinics and schools and mm -hmm. vocational training and business endeavors and school in Haiti and community health program in Haiti. But there's only one reason why we do it all. There's only one reason, and that's for people to know their Savior and know him well. Mm -hmm. I believe that it is really good news, and it's not just a catchphrase, good news. Yeah. But oftentimes, uh, people show up at church, and they don't feel like they just heard good news. Yeah. And uh, it's really good news, and we want people to know that. So what's your favorite thing about what you do? I know that's like probably the hardest question in the whole world, but you have one top thing. I believe that... If we set aside even the, the kingdom aspect of what we're doing, of sharing the good news, and just focus on the development piece in and of itself, mm -hmm. I believe it is the answer for the immigration situation we have in the U.S. You know, the largest population per capita immigrating to the U.S. right now is, is from Honduras. Mm -hmm. And uh, believe it or not, Hondurans don't dream of, you know, going to Cracker Barrel after church on Sunday and having a house and a in a subdivision with a sidewalk. They really do love their country. They love their village, their house, their simple way of life. They love their traditional meals. But they'd also love to be able to fix the roof when it's leaking, buy medicine for their baby when a child's sick, or help their grandmother out with some food, or, wow, pay for their children to go to school. And when we started approaching development from a business point of view of using business endeavors as sustainable tools to transform lives and sustainable tools for discipling, we realized that there's a lot of pieces of the economy that we take for granted in the U.S. that we just know about because we live in a country that thrives. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to develop a lot of those skills intentionally in many of these communities where we're working. And so when you have invested, 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 and then you see lives start to transform, when you see families buying a piece of land, building their own house, when you see a church managing its own budget, when you see a church start you see a church in a remote village start their own food pantry, not because any American has given them a budget. When you see communities of Honduran believers loving on Hondurans, um, that to me is just remarkable. It's, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. And I truly believe that is the way we need to approach ministry more and more internationally instead of just trying to um, treat symptoms is to, to go back to those the roots and and solve these big problems yeah and I think it's really easy for us to say this is what you need you know to like go in and tell them what they need instead of ask what do you need from us absolutely so that's really cool. and and you know we get accustomed to in the U.S. you know if you, if you got a little money we can solve problems yeah. we can find solutions and that's oftentimes not the case mm -hmm. in the developing world um, mm -hmm. money helps tackle certain things, but it doesn't solve um, these deep-rooted cultural issues. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Um, I love outdoors. Um, my family, uh, we do a lot of hiking. Um, me and both of my children, my son and my daughter, spend a lot of time in the woods every fall <laughs> hunting. 
Uh, we love to travel all over the world as a family. Um, uh, I'm very curious, so love just exploring new things. So let's talk about, you've referenced this a couple of times, but I mean, one reason we, we wanted to have you on the pro- podcast, and especially early on, is because of this long-standing relationship that Mission Lazarus has had with, with Healing Hands over so many years. Uh, how did that come about? And then what does that look like for you as the president of an organization as we collaborate in ministry internationally? You know, Healing Hands has literally been a part of our organization from not day one, but like week two. I'd been in Honduras two weeks when a feisty nurse stepped off of a bus, Cindy Herring, who came to visit and uh, learn more about uh, what was going on. Healing Hands had been involved in that region after Hurricane Mitch doing relief work. And from that, the relationship grew. The first year I was in Honduras, I was only going to be down in Honduras 10 months. I was, my plan was then to return to the U.S. to, you know, continue with my goals of fame and fortune. And in the fall of that year, after two significant droughts, the, the villages were without seed. And, you know, this was before um, there was blogs. It was before social media. And so I would write stories about the things I was seeing and send them back to the U.S. And I wrote about the drought and all the children that were in the pediatric ward of the public hospital with broken arms and legs because the only mangoes left were way high in the top of the tree. And they were falling out of the trees as they were trying to get food. And it was just kind of shocking to me that that situation would exist. And so I wrote a story about it just to let people know I wasn't Fundraising, I didn't know anything about fundraising. Uh, that story made its way to Randy Steger, mm. who reached out to me and said, well, you know, what can we do to help? And he got his uh, good friend, uh, Don Yelton, from White's Ferry Road Relief on the line, and then some other folks joined in, and we ended up being able to buy about 100,000 pounds of corn, bean, and sorghum seed and 80,000 pounds of fertilizer. We organized the local church in Honduras and had big Mercedes-Benz trucks headed out every day, all day long into hundreds of really remote uh, jungle mountain villages uh, distributing seed. And we called it Seeds of Hope. I printed up some little forms on my compu- with my computer and wanted to make sure people knew that this was coming from from God. And that single program, which Healing Hands was a major catalyst in, was a deciding factor in me thinking, you know what, I think I'm going to stay down here. I don't think I'm going to go back to the U.S. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I, people seem to be so hungry to, to study the Bible and ask when we were going to come back to them. The rest is history. Yeah, yeah. And today, I know um, the, the collaborative partnership that we have involves, you know, you utilizing our shipping, our warehouse to send containers. Uh, even back in the fall when hurricanes hit, uh, we partnered with you with Disaster Relief. Uh, you've been a long-time partner with MAGEP and uh, distributing those throughout the villages. Talk a little bit about what it looks like today for us to work hand-in-hand together through the various means. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that we have any partner on the ground that is more ingrained throughout the different ministries of Healing Hands than you are. 
Yeah, you know, we come across unique, what we see opportunities to, to be able to impact a community and build relationships so that we can you know, help people dive deeply in their faith. And s- sometimes these opportunities are, are quite unique um, or complicated, whether it's, you know, through agriculture or through water programs. Um, you know, the, the Magi program that we've been able to partner with you guys in the distribution across Honduras for goodness over 15 years probably, um, has been an ongoing, continual uh, thing. It's been a, a blessing to be able to be a part of that with you all. Uh, obviously, the containers that uh, you guys are able to help us with the logistics and and all that goes into loading and documenting and the inventory, getting all that taken care of. But, you know, some of the lesser-known projects, we've done um, probably three or four uh, water, program, water projects in villages that had – they weren't straightforward, uh, just drill a well and put in a pump. It, you know, that it required extremely deep wells and water lines running for 10, 15, 20 kilometers. Um, and, and then, you know, in one village where we did one of these that had a, like a 500 foot deep well, and then there was a, an earthquake and literally two plates somewhere down deep in the bedrocks shifted and 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 it closed the casing oh, well. in the well mm-hmm. and uh, you guys came back and helped us find a solution to be able to get water going again um so you know these things are not really easy things to tackle they're not there's not a cheap quick solution but it's those long-term solutions that we're working with that we're able to engage the community leaders and have them working hand in hand with us that allows us to cultivate the relationships that are so important if we want to have the privilege to be able to talk to people about spiritual things. Yeah. I mean, and that's what the partnership's about, you know, standing there together, uh, hand in hand in the trenches, whatever the needs are that may come up, even if they're outside of scope of what we've done before that, right. uh, that we can work together. Um, we can work together in making that happen. So I wanted to ask you about the pandemic. How did that impact Mission Lazarus in Haiti and Honduras? It's 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 really interesting situation because right now life is getting much back to normal. We're yeah. sitting here face to face with no mask on and no social distancing. And in Honduras, in particular in the region we work in, they just went back into a a, a bit of a lockdown again. As schools have been suspended, um, and uh, the government reached out and asked if we could restart our COVID response with our medical program that we uh, operated for three and a half months last year, where uh, working in, in coordination with the health department of Honduras, going to neighborhoods where they've had spikes in cases and treating patients in their home. Um, so we have uh, three doctors uh, going with a full team and you know three land cruisers with a driver, a nurse, uh, uh, a preacher, and then a you know oxygen tanks, nebulizers, full gauntlet of of, of different meds for different um, symptoms that are presenting, with the goal of helping people to get their symptoms under control before before they end up needing to be in the hospital. And um, if you go to a hospital in Honduras with COVID, it's um, the the outcomes are not oftentimes very positive. And with a healthcare system that is lacking uh, very much, it's it's really tough. 
Haiti, on the other hand, is um, mind-boggling to me. I think there will probably be case studies done for many years on the situation and how it's played out in Haiti. And, you know, the government recognized early on they had no way to respond. Then they said, you know what, we're, we're not even going to do testing because we don't have a functioning healthcare system. And if you ask the majority of Haitians about COVID, they're going to tell you there's no COVID. There's a fever going around, but there's, <laughs> there's no problem. And um, I've been to Haiti twice this year. And as soon as you leave the airport, um, it's rare that you will see anyone wearing a mask. The World Health Organization last year in, in 2020 predicted that by June, by a year ago right now, that Haiti would be having like a thousand deaths a day from COVID. And obviously out in the rural area, people die and the family buries them and there's not anything reported. But in your major urban areas like Port-au-Prince or Cap-Haitian, you, you can't hide that many bodies. There would be significant death showing up. And especially in a country where living quarters are so tight. And they've just not had it. It's just not had it. And if you ask most Haitians, they'll tell you that God's protecting us. God's protected us from this. Wow. Uh, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And um, I believe it. I think that Haiti's been through a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that they deserved a break. And so I, I'm very, I praise God that um, the situation there has not been nearly what it was expected to be. That's miraculous. It really is. Because I, I mean, you would think that you would be hearing about Haiti in the news, but I haven't heard anything about it. What about people that would go to Honduras on trips from here, from the States? Has that impacted your work much? Well, we have a few initiatives that are ongoing that we depend on service teams from the U.S., our community health outreach, which is um, focused on sanitation, putting in latrines in villages. And, and our focus is to tackle the entire village because if there's just one family in a village without uh, adequate sanitation, then that affects the entire village because of the spread of disease and, and parasites. So it's a, it's a major undertaking to do that. And that's been pretty much on hold since, uh, since probably... Sharon, since your trip in February of last year, because that was wow. right, yeah. right before things uh, shut down. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we look forward to being able to, you know, engage our teams again. We have a handful going down this year because it's, it's those programs into these remote villages that we work with that open the door. These, our focus is in very remote, isolated areas, and they're oftentimes very suspicious of outsiders and and superstitious as well of these christians coming in and so the community health um, program allows us to have a very natural way for a family to get to know us and thus to build a relationship so that we can start talking about deeper things yeah that's good now jared covid really hit close to home for you um, like as close as possible <laughs> because you had a very uh, serious, scary episode with them and you are a, a COVID survivor. Um, and tell us a little bit about what that was like for you. You were here in the States, you were on a road trip adventure with your family. Um, yeah. Tell us what that was like for you personally and your family, uh, you know, leading up that, that day and the days after that. 
Yeah, you know, we we took the situation seriously as a family, and if we were going out, we would wear a mask. We didn't we didn't hunker down, but we didn't take you know undue risk. And the Monday, first week of July last year, I I was feeling off. And uh, my wife ha- had started working at Vanderbilt with their COVID response. And um, I was feeling off all morning. And so about 11 o'clock, I said, some, something's not right. I have some weird, I'm just feeling weird and told her kind of how I was feeling. She's like, you need to go get tested. And so, you know, in, in those, back in those days, the early testing, I drove to the, to the Ag Center in Williamson County and had a, a National Guard soldier ram something up to the back of my brain, you know, to get us, <laughs> yep. that I had no idea that was going to happen. I did not know that's what it looked like. Back in the early days of COVID testing. That's right. Um, you know, unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't get the results from that testing for like three weeks. Oh. And so after talking with a few other people, it was determined, you know, you, you've got COVID and you need to, you need to, you know, take some precautions. And so all week long, we, we were actually uh, outside of, of Chattanooga in, in the mountains where we had rented a, a cabin for the week. I, I just was exhausted and just weird kind of neurological symptoms of kind of burning feeling in my mouth, my arms. But it just felt like I had a really, really bad cold. And on July 3rd, Friday, I was sitting in a chair looking at my computer, answering emails. And I, all of a sudden, at about 5 o'clock, I couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. I couldn't catch my breath. It was like I just you know, sprinted 100 yards, and I couldn't catch my breath. And it wouldn't let up. And nothing I would do um, would change it. And I went and laid down and just felt myself getting weaker and weaker. And, and I told Allie, I said, we, we need to pack up. <laughs> we need to get, we were about 40 miles from Chattanooga. So we were probably like 30 miles from an interstate. And I said, we just need to load up everything in the, in the truck. And, you know, you just go 95 and we'll be back to Nashville in an hour and a half. And if I feel bad, then we'll go to the doctor. We'll go to the hospital. Well, when I couldn't walk to the truck uh, to get in, I mean, my wife literally was supporting me to get in and still couldn't catch my breath. She went ahead and made an executive decision that I wasn't aware of and put into her phone, you know, emergency room. And the closest emergency room was in Chattanooga, 40 miles away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for that close to hour long drive, on these winding mountain roads, whatever, it just kept getting worse and worse. Then my fingers uh, started tingling and going numb. My, my hands constricted up, and then it, it started moving up my arms, and I, and I knew what was happening. My body wasn't getting enough oxygen, it, and, and you know, my extremities were, were shutting down. And I knew that this wasn't good, and I knew we were a long way from the hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, I rattled off usernames and passwords, um, so that they would be able to access our stuff online. I glanced back at my son, told him how proud I was of him, and I loved him. He's going to be a, a great man. 
looked at my daughter, same thing. Um, and by now my head is sort of tingling and there was like a black curtain closing from both sides of my vision, my peripheral vision. And I looked at my wife, told her I loved her, told her she was strong. She was strong before I came along. She'd be strong after I was gone. And I said goodbye. And, um, and I said a simple little prayer. And this feeling of peace came over me that I cannot explain. It, it was incredible. And then it was lights out. Mm. And, you know, this whole time my wife was with the dilemma, do I, she's a nurse practitioner, so she knows what to do to theoretically to help. So do I stop and do CPR on the side of the interstate? But CPR is not the problem. It's, he's not getting enough oxygen out of the air that's going into his lungs. So she stayed focused and got to the emergency room. And uh, much to my dismay, I woke up in a room with needles in me and wires on my chest and doctors in astronaut suits crawling all over me. And I thought, this is not what I had in mind for heaven. <laughs> <laughs> this was not the pearly white gates you were expecting. No. You know, that the next morning, um, you know, we, uh, we were to the hospital, I don't know, by like probably like 6.30 or something, I don't remember, and at like 2 or 3 in the morning, I was put in a room, and I woke up the next morning and looked around this room that, you know, it was a brand-new hotel, I mean, brand-new hospital that looked like a brand-new hotel. It, it, was, it looked like a JW Marriott, and it was really overwhelming to me. I was an anomaly, you know, I'm 44 years old, yeah. In great health, yeah. extremely physically active. Like what happened to me shouldn't have happened to me, but it, for whatever reason it did. And as I looked around that room, I thought for the, the people that we love and serve alongside in Honduras and Haiti, if they had this situation, their outcome would be so different than mine. And that was really overwhelming to me uh, to think about that and just how truly paralyzing it felt wow that obviously you um came out of that on the other side with a with another different perspective of the people you serve and their lack of access to the health care and to the facilities that saved your life absolutely yeah you know when we launched our covid response in uh late july last year at the request of of the hunter government um we launched it on faith. We didn't have the funding. It was really expensive. The COVID test, the antivirals, the oxygen, nebulizers, everything, even hiring more uh, caregivers I mean, care providers of uh, doctors. It was really expensive. And uh, we did it on faith just because I knew firsthand, you know, that the outcomes were going to be much different if people were not able to get their symptoms controlled early on. And it was amazing to see how God responded and the resources that were provided that we were able to, to, to see some like 4,500 patients over the next three months. It was incredible. So I watched your TED talk oh. from 2017. You said one thing that really struck me. Um, you said we're apt to repeat the same mistakes when we disregard our fallen condition and ignore our history. And I thought that was really good. And I just wanted to ask you about that, just to explain it a little bit. 
Oh, <laughs> that jumped out. <laughs> expect. Um, I find it so remarkable that we have done so much in our country to try to right discrimination wrongs. We have a long ways to go. Mm-hmm. But we've done a lot to right labor injustices. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, with all of our international trade agreements, um, we've continued in the exact same things. And we've just done it beyond our borders. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a, I-, I view it as a simple solution to the just devastating poverty that 80% of the globe live in. It's 5.8 billion people live on less than $10 a day. And it's all of our international manufacturing and production to pay a thrivable wage, mm-hmm. not pay U.S. wages necessarily, not pay U.S. minimum wage necessarily, but just pay a thrivable wage in those lands. And it's just remarkable to me that we are perplexed at why people would risk everything to come to our land to try to improve their livelihoods and think, wow, how irresponsible they are risking their lives or their children's lives. Why would you do that? But if you went and spent time in their home, you would think, wow, how irresponsible this mother living in these squalid conditions. <laughs> but yet she works in the factory that makes my T-shirt. Yeah. Because I want to be able to get T-shirts for cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so... We've uh, we've come so far in North America and Western Europe, and we've held at at, at an arm's distance what's what we had come up with as our solution to being able to have cheap production and cheap labor. And the world is screaming, and they're coming. They're coming because they have just as much of a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as we do. Right. And I, you know, I, I don't want to get into political discussions at all, but when I look at a wall on the border, because we think that would stop immigration, I think what's better than a wall, if I had a castle, I want a moat around my castle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Mediterranean Ocean is a pretty good moat. And let's look at how well that's working out to prevent tens of thousands of migrants coming from sub-Saharan Africa and thousands drowning crossing the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. but also tens of thousands making it in. And they're chasing the same thing that the people that are piling up at our border are chasing as well. Um, I believe as as Christians, um, especially Christians that are engaged in, in business endeavors, we can do so much, but it, it does require a shift in, in how, you know, we want to view our right to our wealth. Yeah. And I am a capitalist. As I make it very clear in that <laughs> TED Talk. I don't believe in just 
giving things away. Not at all. I, I, I really, really get excited about taking something and, and an idea or a concept and being able to change it, improve it, or tweak it to be able to generate more value. Mm-hmm. And then when we as Christians in the marketplace can use that as a discipling tool, it's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. That's why I love what we do at Healing Hands and you at Mission Lazarus. We equip people. We don't just give them something and they're like, what do we do with this? Use it. And then they toss it out. Right. So Jared, as we close out, um, in the name of the podcast is It Takes a Village. And we all know uh, just what that means in living in community and that it takes so many more people to get us uh, in this journey of life. And talk to us about what that means it takes a village to mission Lazarus, but then also like pull back. And I want to talk about you personally, like who is your village? And then who are those people specifically in your life who have impacted your life? Maybe friends, maybe a mentor. Um, talk to us about that as we close out. Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier that I never dreamed of being in ministry. That was, you know, for our family, that wasn't what I was dreaming of or had a goal to, to do in my life. And as I found myself called to this and as it became this, this incredible passion, we, we realized truly that a, a really thriving holistic ministry, it needs every background, every training, every experience, because certain experiences in your life, Mark, they've equipped you to be able to minister to a certain group of people that I can't minister to effectively because I've not had those experiences and, and vice versa. And same with you, Taryn. And, um, so, you know, oftentimes we'll hear people talk about, you know, as we're trying to share the message, whatever, Oh yeah. You know, my, my, my kids go on those, on those mission trips or, Oh yeah. Our church youth group, they go on those mission trips. Every one of our kids needs to go on one of those mission trips. I hear oftentimes, you know, I say, no, every one of you (laughs) need to go Mm -hmm. and serve. Mm -hmm. Not go on a mission trip, but go and serve. You know, we, we find so much value in so many different um, uh, professionals, from educators to medical professionals to financial planning um, advisors that we put together seminars where they can share this knowledge that they have that we take for granted here in the U.S. And, and when we're able to use that, for the kingdom, it's like incredible. So I, I just, I, we see it daily, how it takes a village. You know, that's one of the really great things about Healing Hands as well is as diverse as we are internally in our programming, so is a lot of this, the, the specialties that uh, Healing Hands has. And I think that's why it's been, uh, why we've been able to partner on so many levels over the years. Yeah, and what about for you personally? Who are, who are those people who have influenced and impacted your life? To get yeah. to make you who you are today. The first person who believed in me to to do this uh, was a really close friend uh, from outside of Chicago, um, Justin Avey, and uh, he was a very successful entrepreneur on a large commercial construction company, and um, he taught me early on that. If what we're wanting to accomplish or go after, if it's God's will, we don't have to have slick marketing. We don't have to have slick messaging and slick fundraising. Yeah, we got to share the story. 
we don't have to try to make it something that maybe it's not, that God doesn't call us to something and not give us the tools to do it. The flip side is that just because there is a need and opportunity doesn't mean that God necessarily wants you to do it. And uh, Justin was just an incredible, incredible mentor and and friend and confidant that uh, God took home way too early in uh, 2013 uh, from cancer. Um, God's given me some other uh, great uh, mentors since then, but none have ever filled the shoes of Justin. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I have to, I think God and I will have to have a, a talk about how that decision came about. Mm. someday yeah we can all look back and think about those people in our life who have shaped us and molded us into who we are jared thank you for joining us uh blessings to you and Allie and the kids and all your family and friends in honduras and haiti and just know that we at healing hands in our office and as a family we, we pray for you often and you're always part of the team at healing hands as we cheer you on so thanks for doing this thank, well, thank you. you guys it's an honor to come share and to be a part of this with you so thank you Awesome. Mark, what stuck out to you? It was great. It, it was, was so great. good. I would say for me, it was just as Jared reflected on his journey and how he has uh, learned to pivot over the years. Like he never expected to be running this international nonprofit. He was a business major. He was doing that consulting firm in Houston and that just wasn't who he was. It wasn't what he was made to do. And, um, you know, he followed his passion and I, I really loved even hearing about how the organization has grown, how he has just been adaptable and change uh, both in Honduras and then going to Haiti. And, you know, just as you listen to his story, it's evident um, just his love for the people oh, in yeah. Honduras and in Haiti, yeah, that that's what so drops passionate. him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's so passionate about those people. He's a relationship guy. Really is. Yeah. yeah. What, what about you? What stuck out? Oh, man. Everything he said, I got emotional a couple times, not going to lie. He was, he was so good. Um, I really like how Mission Lazarus kind of aligns with Healing Hands and what they do, like how they go and they teach and they help. And they, his, I think he talked about their first thing, their motivation is their relationship aspect. Because we kind of look at people we don't know as objects, sort of, and like, oh, let me just throw this stuff at you and let me let me change your life this way. It's like, no, like the relationship is what it's all about. So yeah. I thought yeah, that was, was really good. So good. Well, that's a wrap for episode two. Thanks for joining us, being part of our community here on It Takes a Village. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And just keep listening to us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you're listening right now. And uh, while you're at it, just share it on social media to help us spread the word. Uh, you can find Healing Hands on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And we're just grateful for you, our listeners, uh, for learning more about us in this way. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, guys. See you next time. See ya. Na, 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 na